Hello and welcome to episode 1178 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs, who has a brand new microphone. Same microphone as, as I have, so we are now on a level playing field. Not true. This one's white. Oh, okay. Well, mine's silver, so there's still something to set us apart. But if Jeff sounds any different, that's why. Hopefully it's an improvement. Not that you sounded bad before. So we have a lot to get to, I guess. Later in this episode, we're doing season previews. We'll be talking to Chelsea Janes of the Washington Post about the Nationals. And then we'll be talking to Jason Beck of MLB.com about the Tigers. But the stove is suddenly hot. It took a long time to heat up, but we suddenly have transactions here. We have a belated Eric Hosmer signing and J.D. Martinez signing. We have a trade, a three-way trade that just broke as we were about to record, which you have to go right about as soon as possible. (laughs) We have Tampa Bay Rays transactions that happened over the past few days. We also have Scott Boris dredging up another volcano analogy, which naturally we need to (laughs) touch on for a second. We covered this about a month ago, right, when Scott Boris said that the pirates were sitting on an economic economic volcano. Well, more recently, he has now described the Padres as a volcano of hot talent lava. To turn that lava into Major League Rock, it's a hard thing to do. Thoughts? This is so stupid. Look, I get Boris always gets credit for his creativity because, of course, he explains things in a way that most agents don't. But he's also just wrong and stupid about all these things. Like when he was talking about the America's Cup, what he explained was in no way related to the America's Cup. No boats go to Japan in the America's Cup. And here, to turn that lava into Major League Rock, he added, it's a hard thing to do. That's stupid. Lava is already extruded by definition. Magma becomes lava when it reaches the air, when it reaches the surface. It's not a hard thing to turn lava into rock. It becomes rock. It Because of just the air temperature and the ground, it reaches thermal equilibrium pretty fast, depending on the composition of the lava itself. But this is just stupid. And you know what? A volcano of hot talent lava? Well, you know, maybe the volcano's dormant or extinct. Volcanoes lie (laughs) silent like 99.9 repeating percent of the time. So there are some volcanoes, like I guess Kilauea, that's just in like a nearly constant eruption. But those are those are the exception and not the rule. There's Mount Hood is like 60 miles from Portland. Mount Rainier is close to Seattle. You know what they've been doing lately? Whole bunch of nothing. They kind of rumble. There's like constant little tremors under the surface because there's magma movement. And maybe, maybe it's a warning sign that something's going to happen. But no, almost always not. So maybe what Scott Boris is saying is that, oh, the Padres are there and it's a mountain of talent and it's never going to actually do anything again. It's just going to smell bad. (laughs) Well, we already did our Padres preview, which was not particularly well-timed, although we did talk about the potential for an Eric Hosmer signing about a day before the signing actually occurred. So both of these deals, we can kind of group them together in that they're both Scott Boris clients who were holding out for more money for a really long time and eventually signed and signed for amounts that I think are not all that far from what they were projected to earn, at least in some quarters. The the Fangraphs crowdsourcing project, I know, nailed the J.D. Martinez contract exactly. But in both of these cases, it's somewhat misleading just to look at the years and the dollars, which in Hosmer's case, it's eight years and $144 million. In J.D. Martinez's case, it's 
five years and 110 million. But both of these guys have opt-outs during those contracts. With Hosmer, it's what, after the fifth year? With Martinez, it's after the first couple of years, right? So that changes things. We've talked about opt-outs every time there's been an opt-out on this podcast. There's always a lot of discussion about what an opt-out means. I think the consensus is that it is player-friendly. It gives the player the chance to earn a lot of money up front and then have a safety net in the back of the contract and sort of robs the team of the potential to get a player for less than he turns out to be worth. If Martinez or Hosmer are fantastic for the first couple or several respectively years of these contracts, then they'll just leave and sign bigger contracts. So that sort of removes some of the upside for the teams here. So the pure dollar amounts here are lower than they would be if there were no opt-outs involved. It's it's like adding some nebulous amount of money on top of the total value. Yes. I don't know exactly why opt-outs seems like they're still so widely misunderstood. I get that they're like a, still a newer thing in contracts and you were conditioned to just evaluate contracts by the years and the dollars, but opt-outs aren't complicated. It's just a player option, just a multi-year player option. That's all that it is. And we know that teams love having club options because those are team friendly and player options are player friendly. This is not, teams don't give opt-outs to players because they think they can get something out of it aside from just trying to convince the player to sign there. If the Red Sox had an option of giving JD Martinez five years and $110 million or five years and $110 million with two opt-outs, the Red Sox would prefer the first one. But they had to give the second one to convince him and Scott Boris to sign. So I I just don't know why these are still so confusing to so many people. Yeah, I guess it's that, well, particularly with pitchers, maybe there's this perception that the longer the deal is, the worse it is for the team. And so if you get an opt-out and the odds of the player leaving go up, then one would think that maybe it would be better for the team, but it doesn't really work that way. <laughs> but I can see why it, it might mislead people in that way. So we could talk about briefly, I mean, everyone knows these players. We've certainly talked and written about Hosmer at nauseum. Everyone knows Tito Martinez is one of the best hitters in baseball in recent years. Not much of anything else. Not a great fielder, not a great base runner. Hosmer, of course, has been up and down as a player, seeming to alternate between replacement level and above average every other year. Both of these signings had been rumored for quite some time, so neither came as a great surprise. I think that Martinez is a very obvious fit, and Hosmer is a much less obvious fit, and we did talk to Dennis Lynn on the last episode about why the Padres are interested in Hosmer, but you wrote the transaction analyses for both of these posts, so major takeaways from from each? I mean, this, I wrote about Hosmer in San Diego in like December or something, and yeah. the the idea then was that he would sign for something kind of similar to what he signed for. So I I felt like I didn't really have much of anything new. And and J.D. Martinez to Boston, I, I think it's kind of funny that Martinez signed for $110 million and two opt-outs while Gerard Dyson signed for two years and like $7 million with the Diamondbacks because Gerard Dyson yeah. is good. He's not as good as J.D. Martinez. He's good in a completely different way. But, you know, it's not... It's not crazy to think that over similar playing time, they could be similarly valuable. But nevertheless, J.D. Martinez is one of the 10 or 15 best hitters in baseball. At least he has been since his swing change. And you remember he was kind of one of the original swing changers. He's kind of back in that Josh Donaldson, Justin Turner timeline. So if you if you think about this from J.D. Martinez's perspective, well, 
less than four years ago, he was cut by the Houston Astros, who were bad. And <laughs> yeah. their their left fielders that year went on to have the lowest combined OPS in Major League Baseball, while J.D. Martinez was great. So that's funny. It's kind of a, one of the main interesting angles to this transaction, because the transaction itself is so unsurprising. And as for Hosmer and the Padres, I just... I, I don't think it's efficient, but at the same time, the Padres have money and they have no one to spend it on. So it, I don't think it's crippling. I know a lot of people went to fan graphs thinking, oh, they're going to rip this contract to shreds. And it's, you know, it's I think it's an overpay. I don't think it's terrible and it's not going to cripple the Padres at all. But Osmer's fascinating. And I'm, I'm certain that he's going to go to San Diego and someone is going to talk to him about maybe trying to change his swing. And we'll uh, mm-hmm. we'll see if that actually comes out to play. Yeah, and as you pointed out in your piece, Martinez just makes, he doesn't make that much contact, but when he does make contact, it's fantastic contact. He is one of the best hitters, no matter what direction he is hitting the ball. He's like the best hitter in baseball to the opposite field, but he's also excellent everywhere else. And you also wrote recently that this was the worst year ever for the DH, right? In 2017 was just the least production ever to come from the DH slot. And Martinez moving back to the AL. Maybe we'll go some way toward correcting that. He's really great. Red Sox fans know what it's like to have a really great DH. They're about to have one again for uh, at least a, a couple of years, most likely. So Red Sox are good, and I don't know if this pulls them even with or ahead of the Yankees, but it certainly narrows whatever gap there was. There's going to be a real race there. There's not a, a whole lot of daylight between those teams, I don't think. So it's a move that everyone anticipated because it made a lot of sense from their perspective, and now it has happened. And so Hosmer, it seems, has a lot to do with leadership and mentoring and setting the tone and all of those things that are really beyond the ability of, of numbers really to assess. And I guess briefly, you just wrote about the Rays too. <laughs> they traded Jake Odorizzi. They have now, just before we started talking, traded Steven Souza to Arizona. There was a lot of consternation about their DFAing Corey Dickerson. And there's a, a lot of kind of blowback from players on the team. Evan Longoria said, I feel sorry for the Rays fan base. Kevin Kiermeyer, who is still on the Rays for the moment, at least, said something to the same effect. He is frustrated about the moves that the team has made. 100% frustrated and very upset, he said. The Rays also, by the way, announced their team blog at mlblogs.com would be christened Ray Tank over the weekend, (laughs) which was really terrible timing (laughs) to name your team blog something tanking related at the same time that you are trading a lot of your best players. But what's the the main takeaway here? I I guess the Rays did not agree with their Pocota projections, perhaps. Well, it's it's confusing because I know that the Rays had traded Evan Longoria already, but when I wrote this post, which was a little before the Rays made another trade, long story short, even though it looks bizarre to designate an all-star for assignment in Corey Dickerson, and I know they traded uh, Jake Odorizzi to the Twins, the Rays have so much pitching that I don't think that Odorizzi is going to be a, a meaningful loss to their record, and they designated Dickerson for assignment because he just doesn't have that much value around the league right now because he's not really much of an outfielder, he's not much of a runner, and costs about $6 million dollars and he's just like a a slightly above average hitter and there are a lot of those guys who are out there available for even less you could sign seth smith if you wanted to for like a year and probably two and a half million dollars and 
he would give you kind of the same thing. So it looks weird. And this is all kind of a consequence of an ownership directive to, to slash payroll, which I guess probably informed the Steven Souza trade that they have now made, which I'm just trying to piece together now, <laughs> but it's hard to do because it's a three-way trade. And it's I, I know that the Rays are getting a prospect from the Diamondbacks, a high-level pitching prospect. They're getting a mid-level second base prospect for the Yankees, but they're losing Souza, who's good. So I don't know exactly what the Rays' intention is here because they now, I, I think, could use another outfielder. But what I do think could be happening here, I think the Rays are slashing money, but they're also probably going to invest in just some bargain player who's left still out there. I don't know uh-huh. if that's going to be Logan Morrison, you know, coming back or something. I wouldn't be too uh, too surprised if that did happen. But I think that when this is over, it's look, it's annoying that the Rays don't spend, but the Rays never spend. I don't know what their books are. I'm sure they can afford to do more, but this is how they've always worked. And I don't think that they are a bad baseball team. I don't think that what they're doing so far is in any way similar to what the Marlins are doing. I think that the Rays are churning while the Marlins are deliberately tanking. Yeah, and then the last bit of baseball news, which you also wrote about, you've been pretty busy lately. (sighs) Finding topics has not been such a problem for you in the last couple of days. There was an announcement about the pace of play measures for 2018 or the lack thereof. I think we all expected that there was going to be a pitch clock that is not happening this season, although I assume that it will still happen at some point in the future. Instead, the Players Union and MLB actually agreed on something. They got together and worked out an agreement rather than MLB imposing some solution unilaterally. And so there are going to be shorter breaks between innings and during pitching changes. There are going to be limits on mound visits, but there will be no pitch clock for now. And I I think we were both generally in favor of a pitch clock, still are. It has worked fairly well in the minors and hasn't really intruded all that much once the players got used to it. But I think, you know, it wasn't going to be a, a panacea, certainly, for the increase in game length that has so many causes and some of them are really hard to root out, like the strikeouts, like velocity, like counts going deeper, like players just taking more time because it benefits them to take more time and they haven't really had a a whole lot of reason not to aside from some fines in recent years so I think this doesn't really address the problem in a very dramatic way I don't think you're going to see playing times dip to an enormous degree but if it at least arrests the climb in game length for a season or two That's not a bad thing. You know, I don't think it affects the root cause, but I'm also not averse to making improvements on the margins. Yeah, it's interesting to see the the pitch clock avoided. I don't think that it's necessarily been avoided for long. And my own opinion of the pitch clock has been evolving over time. I know that players really don't seem to like it. And I do understand that it would be a fundamental change to the sport. I am interested to see if the players and I guess umpires can sort of police themselves here. And I know that a lot of catchers have expressed some concern about not having as many mound meetings. Now, I don't think a single fan has expressed concern over that. But so much of that, aside from the odd meeting to give a reliever extra time to warm up, so much of it seems to be related to sign stealing and just telling the pitcher that, hey, we're going to use these different signs. And I saw a tweet, I forgot who it was just yesterday, but some baseball person said that, yeah, I'm concerned because we're not going to be able to change signs. But then the tweet went on, uh, the person conceded that you can change signs without going to the mound to have a meeting, Mm -hmm. which seems like the point. You know, you can have a code to change your signs. So 
Anyway, I think it's all salvageable. Of course, there are going to be problems. There's going to be some sort of hiccup with these rules. People will have their complaints. But from the player's perspective, they avoided a clock, at least for now. And and we'll see if they can actually stick with trying to make things faster. Because the players want the games to go faster, too. Who wants to work yep. more? Sure. And as Joshian, I know, has pointed out, maybe one of the reasons for more mound visits lately is that there are just more pitchers. Uh, every catcher has to work with many more pitchers in the course of a week or the course of a season than the typical catcher did 10, 20, 30 years ago. So that's a lot more work, a lot more mastering repertoires and building those relationships. So I can see why if left unchecked, there would be more mound visits. It's not necessarily just frivolous and everyone wasting our time. There's a reason for it, but that also seems like something you could correct with just more preparation off the field, whether it's extra bullpen sessions or just catcher pitcher planning meetings i mean there are seemingly ways around this other than having to figure things out on the fly in the middle of a baseball game so i am not against this change i i can see why players wouldn't love it but i'm not against it so it's it's half measures i guess maybe it's not even half measures but it's a measure so i don't mind it and uh i guess we can leave it there you have a trade to write up i think maybe we'll have some more talk about the market and what the Hosmer and Martinez signings mean for all the collusion, speculation, and the labor strife. And I might be writing something about the baseball market, so we can pick that up again tomorrow. And I just want to note later in the episode, you'll hear Jason Beck talking about the Tigers' new pitching coach, Chris Basio, and how he's approaching things differently. Jason wrote about this. You know, Tigers are getting more data intensive and in how they're handling pitchers and catchers. And I was reading one of his recent dispatches from spring training and he says he's talking about Basio here he says he wants pitchers working on tempo varying their rhythm to make it tougher for hitters to get comfortable in the box against them he has a drill with pitchers to try to throw six pitches in 60 seconds and another where pitchers slow their wind up and hold for a second he wants pitchers more comfortable being less predictable and getting a little edge on hitters that way and Basio says it's because hitters know what's coming they have scouting reports you have to find ways to confuse them and this reminded me of something that David Lorela reported in one of his Sunday Notes columns last year, I think in early April, and he wrote about something similar that Ray Searage, the Pirates pitching coach, said, and this is a quote from Searage, we want to change up the cadence in between pitches. That's one of the biggest things we worked on this spring. Not only do you screw up the runner on first base out of the stretch, you also disrupt the timing of the hitter. It's a double-edged sword, etc. So the Pirates had the same plan that the Tigers are professing to have now. And this is something that I monitored all throughout last season because I thought, wow, this is this little obscure tidbit that David reported. I'll track it. Maybe this will be like the new market inefficiency. The pirates will be super unpredictable and I can write an article about this. And every time I checked the stats, there was no evidence that this was happening. I just checked the full season 2017 stats and I looked at the variance in the time between pitches for each team. I looked with the bases empty and with men on. The Pirates had the eighth least variance in time between pitches with the bases empty and the sixth least variance in time between pitches with men on. And in both cases, less variance between pitches than they had had in 2016. So they made this concerted <laughs> effort. Well, this is the cornerstone of our pitching strategy this year. And they went the other way and didn't stand out at all in that category. 
And I think that's just a quick PSA. Just remember, we're going to read a lot of things about things that players and teams are intending to do differently in the coming season. Happens every spring. Sometimes those things actually give us a preview of what's going to happen in the season. Often they do not because it's one thing to have a plan. It's another to actually put that plan into action and have it work out over the course of a season. So don't buy into everything you read this month. Timing variations for pitchers are the new. We're going to steal more bases this season. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, that's kind of the classic one. Last thought, just wanted to shout out quickly something I wrote that's up at the ringer now. I don't know exactly the demographic breakdown of our audience, but I do know the demographic breakdown of the Facebook group, and it is extremely skewed toward male listeners or members, which is unfortunate. It's something I'd like to change, but it's also sort of something that's plagued the sabermetric community from the start. If you look back at the history of baseball stats from Alan Roth to Bill James to Tom Tango, particularly two or three decades ago or earlier, it is almost exclusively male. And there are many, many reasons for that, of course. And this is not just something that plagues sabermetrics, but also other science and technology and math and engineering fields. Anyway, just wanted to mention that there is a really remarkable and inspirational exception to that trend. And I wrote about her and her story at The Ringer. Her name is Sherry Nichols. And she was really a formative, influential figure in the early days of sabermetrics in the mid-80s to mid-90s. I had heard her name every now and then and thought, Sherry Nichols, that sounds different from the the typical name who was involved in sabermetrics at that time. And so I got curious and I looked her up and I talked to her and I talked to people who were around in that community at that time about her and her work. And everyone I talked to was so incredibly complimentary and I kept learning things as I went and discovering how deep the impact that Sherry had on sabermetric research was. Not only did she influence the the founder of Baseball Prospectus, which might never have come together, we might not have this podcast, if not for Sherry and her posting on the Rexport Baseball Board back on Usenet, but she was also the first to develop a zone-based defensive system, defensive average. She was instrumental in the early days of RetroSheet and making sure that all the data we rely on for so many articles and studies and satisfying our curiosity stayed free and public and available to everyone. She just has a really amazing story and I was really glad I got to tell it so I will link to the piece in the Facebook group and on the show page at Fangraphs please do check it out I'd love for more people to be aware of Sherry and her contribution and of course it's becoming more common for teams to employ women in R&D roles we talked to two Megan Schroeder and Emily Frejapan on episode 878 of this podcast but they are still very much a minority in front offices but that is changing and hopefully the example that Sherry Set can help spur that change. One tidbit about Retrosheet I found out while I was working on that article, by the way. They are now at 93.8% complete in having statistical accounts of every baseball game from the modern era. That's 1901 on. They have 182,911 of the 194,908 games played in that period. It's incredible. So we will take a very quick break. Jeff will go right about the latest trade, and we will be back in just a moment to talk to Chelsea Janes of the Washington Post about the Washington Nationals. We're all wondering When will you come back And play Someday Please do come back And play Someday Please do come back Someday, 
So we are joined again, as we have been for past previews of the Washington Nationals, by Chelsea Janes, who covers the Nationals for the Washington Post, although currently she is covering ice dancing in South Korea <laughs> at the Winter Olympics, uh, which I was not aware of when I first asked her to come on the preview, but she was kind enough to accommodate us anyway. So how has it been to cover like Joaquin Benoit signing in between <laughs> ice dancing events? <laughs> I mean, fortunately, uh, Jorge Castillo, who uh, works with me on the beat, has been able to do a lot of that from there. But I've, you know, the time is obviously so different. So I woke up to a, a panic, you know, text and walking Benoit signing in the middle of the night. And I never, I don't think he's ever inspired so much panic in anyone. So yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> he's a, he has inspired panic in several people. I can tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, I fair guess enough, fair enough. the rare times when he's been a closer perhaps, but That's true. well, how is covering the Olympics? Uh, I mean, it seems like a, an obvious question. How is it different from the typical beat? But I mean, you're trying to familiarize yourself with events that I assume you're not following year round and athletes that you're certainly maybe not even aware of before you showed up there, whereas yeah. with the Nationals, you're following them year-round. You know how people play baseball. <laughs> I mean, this must right. be a, a challenge, but I assume a, a fun one. Yeah, I mean, my ice dancing knowledge was certainly limited before I got here and <laughs> most most other sports too. So you're kind of always playing catch-up, but the characters are good. And, and unlike baseball, a lot of them want the questions and the attention in the interviews. So that's mm. sort of a nice little different change. But yeah, it's an adventure, but I'll be super happy to be in West Palm Beach and be warm and uh, be in more familiar territory. <laughs> right. So the most recent thing, I guess, that you were trying to cover slash stay up to date with while you were watching the Olympics is Bryce Harper talking about not talking about right. his free agency, which is coming up next offseason. So I assume that that's kind of coloring the way that everyone is watching the nationals and following the nationals this year. Is there a sense that the team, I don't know, is running out of time or needs to make the most of its time with Harper or any sort of guess about what the odds are of his resigning? You know, I think sort of all the fraughtness uh, around Bryce is, is more external. I think that everyone inside the Nats inside Bryce's camp has sort of known exactly where they stood for at least two years now. You know, you saw them get the ARB deal done a year ahead of time, get everything off the table. I don't think there was ever any realistic expectation that, you know, they'd be able to negotiate an extension. And I, I never read into that as there's bad blood. They don't want to talk. It's just it's Bryce Harper. It's the potential for a $500 million deal. It's Scott Boris. It just that's just always how it was going to go. So I don't think there's a whole lot of panic at all internally. I think obviously it's the talk of the town externally. But even him saying he he wasn't going to talk about it was no surprise. I mean, he, he dismissed all those questions last year. It's, you know, what can he really say? And and I think, you know, it's obviously going to be this the main storyline of this year, but nothing's really changed. And frankly, it's kind of been a main storyline for two to three years now. So, so I don't think anyone in that clubhouse is is over or even in the front office, frankly, is overly consumed with with that relationship right now. Not that the point of this isn't to talk about the Nationals in, in 2018, but because we are talking about Harper, even uh, even if there were a chance that he were going to stick around, it's clearly not the likelihood after this year. And so you look at this year and you've got Harper and you've got Daniel Murphy in the last years of their contracts. Of course, they're not the only two, but they're the big two. What is sort of the organizational sense of urgency here? Because while every team is more than just one or two players, clearly there's there's a window here 
with uh, with some other teams in the division that are starting to creep up. Yeah. And in retrospect to the first question, I realized when you said running out of time, that was another aspect of it. And I think that is a fair characterization. You know, I think there really is a a sense that like, okay, this is the last best chance. The thing about that is they've had about two last best chances in the last four years and continue to be able to sort of reload. I, you know, I don't see losing Harper as a death knell. I think Murphy obviously is a big loss too, but I, you know, I, they're going to have a lot of money coming off the books. And, and in one conversation I had with Mike Rizzo lately, he went right down the list unprompted of all the money that's going to clear after this year. And I don't expect them to sit on it. You know, I think they look at that class like everyone else does. And, and they're, you know, a, a top five spending team right now. So I don't I don't think it signals the end. I think with Turner and Rendon and, and obviously Strasburg and Scherzer aging, but still under contract, you have something there. But I do think there's a sense that, like, in terms of World Series contending, this is the shot. And then and then you're at least a couple years out from having this good of a chance again. So I guess the story of the Nationals offseason, other than looking ahead to Harper's free agency, is the managerial change, which I think mm-hmm. was surprising to a lot of people. And that's no slight on Dave Martinez at all. But it certainly seemed as if Dusty Baker did the job that he was brought in to do. And he was not retained. And it was somewhat mystifying the circumstances. There were quotes about how he did get them to the World Series, but that's obviously a pretty high bar to hold a manager to year in and year out. So what do we know about why the decision to change managers was made? Um, You know, I think it was ownership. I think they felt like they had to do something. I know Mike Rizzo wanted Dusty back, point blank. I know that while there hasn't been a whole lot of uproar publicly from the clubhouse, that everyone would have been fine with Dusty back. You know, he's sort of just, you know what he is. He's just a a good, pleasant person to be around, let everybody do their thing. And, And this team doesn't need a whole lot more than that, or at least, you know, it didn't seem like it did. I guess we'll find out. But yeah, it was ownership. I think that they felt like something had to change. I think that was a fairly quick decision. I don't think that was the case entering the playoffs. And then maybe even immediately after the season ended and then sort of in the days after they sort of talked themselves into it. But, um, you know, I know Rizzo was said all year he wanted Dusty back and that never changed. And and it's just really interesting, you know, the position that ownerships put themselves in now when you say you didn't get us to, you know, the next level. Well, if Jose Lobaton doesn't get picked off first base or Matt Weeders, you know, catches strike three or whatever, it's like they're there. So yeah. is that Dusty's fault? No. So they've put themselves in a real hard position and they put Dave Martinez in a really interesting and, and sort of desperate position. Well, why do you think they chose Martinez and what are his best attributes and how do you expect him to differ from Dusty or from the typical manager if it's even possible to say without seeing him in an in-game situation? Yeah, you know, I think he was always going to be the guy. My understanding is it was a very quick process, you know, that they liked him before they hired Matt Williams. They went with Williams. They thought they needed discipline. Didn't really work out. They saw that Martinez had matured a little bit, and, and that was just going to be the move. You know, I think they I think they liked that he's sort of a forward thinker. He's already, you know, changed up sort of the vibe around camp, from what I understand, from afar with, you know, more music and shorter workouts and sort of letting veterans do what veterans need to take care of themselves and nothing more. And I think that this is a clubhouse that's going to respond to that. You know, I know Bryce Harper has always been a Joe Madden admirer. And so by extension, sort of likes that quirky new school approach. And, you know, I I don't think he's alone in that. I think a lot of those guys are proven and sort of have the sense that, hey, we don't need our hands held. Let's just get in, get out, have some fun and, you know, work with a guy who's been there and, and 
helped a team to a World Series. So I think they just felt like he was a good fit, was a guy who wasn't going to try to do too much, maybe just kind of change the energy a little bit. And that's, you know, so far seems to be what he's doing and, and seems to be something that's being received fairly well down there. We're sitting here, and I don't know what's going to happen between when we're talking now and when this gets published, but, you know, Jake Arrieta is still a free agent. How tired are you of having people suggest (laughs) that the Nationals are going to be the team that signs him because of the ownership and Scott Boris connection? I mean, on the scale of things I was tired about, you know, where's Bryce Harper going is just so far and away at the top. (laughs) But I, you know, and then, of course, the the odd, you know, J.D. Martinez to the Nats because he's a Boris client was that was never going to happen. But um, yeah, it's exhausting. Uh, I feel like we've had to shut it down once a month and you can never really shut it down. You know, I, I would have said the same about Matt Wieters last year. I said, you know, no, they don't like him. No, they don't like him. They never liked him. And then all of a sudden he's still a free agent and he becomes a national. And it was, you know, I, that's how I feel about Arietta. It's like, no, they do not like him. They're not going to overspend for him. But if he's still there, you just can't rule him out. And he's still there. So you just can't rule him out. But I just don't see them bidding with I don't know. You know, it, it just he's not high on their list, but he's a Boris client. And that's sort of where it stands. But it, it is exhausting. And it's also always makes you look dumb because no matter what their evaluators tell you about how they think about these guys, it doesn't matter because ownership sometimes steps in, gets involved with Scott and and these guys become Nats overnight. Speaking of catcher, that was kind of a, a weak point for the Nets last year. There was a lot of speculation this winter about them possibly trading for someone like Yasmani Grandal. That hasn't happened. Your colleague Jorge Castillo tweeted something earlier today from Kevin Long's press conference about Matt Wieters <laughs> making yeah. adjustments and feeling right. pretty sexy about what he is right. doing. That's a quote. Right. <laughs> I don't know how familiar you are with the details of that because, again, ice dancing. But... Uh, uh, <laughs> what do we know about uh, Weeders' I guess, odds of a, a bounce back or whether the Nationals are confident in that catching position? You know, what I can tell you for sure is that uh, sexy was not Matt Weeders' word, for sure. Uh, <laughs> doesn't sound like something that would have come out of his mouth. But yeah, you know, I, I know he's tried to lose a lot of weight. I know he felt really slow last year and it was, you know... <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to tell from afar and not on TV what these swings look like, but his was so slow you could see it from a mile away. I think he's really tried to address that. And, you know, I think Kevin Long will be a big boost of energy for him. I, you know, I don't know the specifics of the adjustments. I don't even, you know, know if he mentioned them, but I know that there have to be adjustments made. The swing got so long and, and you know, it just wasn't working. But, I, you know, I think if the upgrade is there, they'll take it. I think Miguel Montero's there to, you know, push for that backup job and be somebody that they trust in a in a more everyday job. I know everyone on the Nats wants Weeders to play less than he did last year and try to keep him fresh, and, and Weeders wants to play more. So that's sort of interesting to watch. But I also know they love GT Real Muto, and they always have. And, and if the price weren't Robles, they'd have it. So if that price ever comes down, I expect to see that happen. But as of right now, I think they're confident going in with what they have. And frankly, you know, they can they can wait it out. They can see what happens at the deadline because look at the bats they have around Wheaters. It's, it's you know, he's not going to be the reason anything does or does not happen. Before last season ended in the nightmarish fashion that it did, uh, Michael A. Taylor got them to hit a pretty nice home run for the Nationals and uh, sent some shockwaves through the fans. And, and Taylor wound up having a, a very strong Nearly everyday season, he wound up as a above average hitter, good defender in the outfield. He's he's 26 years old, and he didn't really clean up any of his strikeout problems last year. He just hit for a, a good deal more power. But you've seen for the past month or two, like Taylor's name has shown up connected in in Real Muto rumors, which you know doesn't really make sense from the Marlins side. But nevertheless, what is the the organization's faith in Michael A. Taylor right now, uh, given that he is their starting center fielder at the moment? 
I think it's high. I mean, he is a gold glove center fielder. You know, when, when you get to watch him every day, he's he's incredibly special. I think they've always known that, and that's why you see him get the chances he has. I don't think anyone knows what to make of him offensively. I think there's a few people in the camp who say, okay, last year proved that he can do this, that he could be, you know, potentially a 25, 25, 30, 30 guy. I mean, the power's there, the speed is there. But then I think there are people who see the strikeouts and, and you know, think he is never going to be anything more than a guy who strikes out and can hit the ball a long way. And that's not really their MO as a team anymore. So frankly, I'm sort of surprised he's still here. I, I thought they'd sell high on him. I think that he's a guy who's always sort of battling himself mentally. And, and it's always hard with those guys to know if they've truly turned a corner, or if, you know, a slow start's going to drag him down. But I'm surprised he's still around. I, you know, I thought they'd capitalize on that postseason and, and try to get some value from him, particularly with Robles pretty much ready to go. But, you know, I, I think they they believe in him as a defender. I think they see enough in him offensively that he can be a starting center fielder. I just don't know how long he lasts if he struggles because Robles just looks so incredibly ready. And most of the lineup, I mean, it's it's largely the same guys who were on the team last year, which is not a bad thing. But the difference, maybe, hopefully, will be Adam Eaton, who, of course, missed most of last season and seems to be on track to be ready for the start of the season. Is that the case? Is he expected to be hampered in any way? Because I think I maybe like Eaton more than most people, but I just think Eaton, especially in left field, could be a, a defensive asset and his bat has been very consistent and solid and he's someone who doesn't get a whole lot of attention. But if he is there for the full season, that's a, a pretty big upgrade over last year. Yeah. You know, I think they do expect him to be pretty much ready the whole time, but I I think there's a very strong awareness that they're going to have to hold him back a little. You know, again, it's given their division, even though it has improved a little bit, they don't have to rush out of the gate. They don't have to push him. They don't have to push Murphy. So I don't think he'll get a whole lot of at-bats in spring training, or maybe not as many as he would normally. But I do think they expect him to be their leadoff guy and, and play every day. And, you know, I think he's going to be a huge defensive upgrade in left field. And, you know, Mike Rizzo hasn't whiffed on a lot of big deals in his career. And, and the return, obviously, that the White Sox got for Eaton was huge. But there's a reason. You know, they see a guy in Eaton that can be at that top of that order for four years with relatively low cost. And, you know, I think they really truly expect him to be that impact guy. And, and there's no reason to think that, you know, provided the knee is healthy and it has had, it'll have had, you know, a year of time to heal that he can't be that guy. So, you know, I think they expect a lot of him. I think he'll take some pressure off Trey Turner, which might help him kind of be himself in the two hole. And, you know, I think they really expect him to change that lineup for the better. One of the running jokes with Clayton Kershaw, maybe he wouldn't call it a joke, but he goes into every spring training and he says, I want to work on my changeup. Kershaw's never really had a reliable changeup. Hasn't been there for him. Obviously, he hasn't needed it. I don't know. Maybe now his priority is just on staying healthy. But, you know, at this point, Max Scherzer is 33 years old. He's uh, he's pretty much perfect. He's great. What is it? I know you're not at spring training right now, but what is it that Max Scherzer says that he needs to work on if there's anything? Oh, he would tell you everything. I, I mean, I, I'm laughing because I expect to get there and see him tinkering with something. You know, I, I remember last spring I caught him trying something new and, you know, he hushed me. He was like, don't tell anyone. And I was like, well, if you use that in a game, I'm telling somebody and he never did. But he's always trying, you know, he's always tinkering. And it's just, you know, I mean, part of me expects to someday get down there and see him throwing a knuckleball. You know, it's just like he's always looking for one more asset. And I think in addition to, you know, staying healthy and and maybe potentially sort of 
avoiding the little, you know, nicks that he got last year. I, I just expect him to always be trying something different, you know, trying to throw the curve in more counts, stuff like that. But he would tell you that he's always trying to get better. And it's not just lip service. He is genuinely always, maybe he's a dad, no. So maybe 99% of the time thinking about ways to, you know, win game five and beyond. Ryan Zimmerman's bounce back was obviously a, a big part of last season, particularly in the first half, but he was even solid in the second half. And this was after a, a couple of years, certainly one year or more, where he'd been hampered by injuries and just didn't look like the same guy when he was on the field. So is the expectation that he can maintain this level? Was there a thought that maybe he was playing a bit over his head at this point of his career last year? Or or are they kind of penciling in the same sort of production in 2018? I don't think they expect the same production. I think he got off to sort of a ridiculous start and, and that buoyed all the numbers. I mean, if he's healthy, he's very similar to that guy. You know, he's where those numbers ended and he's streaky. So, it, you know, I think they expect him to start faster, start slow, and then get slower, get fast, and then pick up again and, and do most of his production in, you know, two months and maybe even a month and a half and, you know, have those numbers level out. But, you know, they know what he is when he's healthy and, and he wasn't the same guy when he wasn't. It's that simple with him. So I think they think if they can keep him healthy and, you know, you don't go sign Matt Adams if you don't expect to play him a lot. And I think that they do, you know, I think they're going to try to keep Zimmerman on the field as much as they can and, and, they brought in Adams so they could have somebody there who could, you know, back him up and be reliable. But I think they know what Zimmerman is and, and just want to make sure that he's able to stay on the field and be that guy. I'll go back to excellent starting pitchers. Uh, Steven Strasburg last year, for the first time since pre-Tommy John surgery, he had a, a sub-3 ERA. He spent a little time on the disabled list, but he was uh, he was excellent, made 28 starts. All the numbers were there. He, was, uh, he didn't allow an earned run, of course, in the playoffs in his two starts. I know that for a long time, Strasburg suffered from sort of the burden of impossible expectations. I remember his debut. We all remember his debut. But where is, I guess, sort of the, the consensus opinion on Steven Strasburg today, given how his reputation has been so, I guess, volatile? I think everything changed in the playoffs. Um, I think, you know, ahead of game four, when it looked like he wasn't going to start, it was, oh, my God, it's, you know, this guy again. And then all of a sudden he goes out there and, and just shoves and it's oh my god this guy's a big game pitcher and you know frankly if you look at his numbers and, and you, you can't say this to anyone in dc but he's a better big game pitcher than scherzer right now you know if you look at the playoffs and you know if you look at game five who you want i mean strasburg's was better last year so i you know i i think that he really won some people over with that and you know he's just always so complicated and you sort of know you're gonna get a nick and a dl stand a year and but the fact of the matter is that, you know, he's really good. The numbers are good. They're elite. They're Scherzer-esque. And, and it's just a matter of keeping him on the field. And, you know, I think the playoffs really changed how he's seen in D.C. because that's why he's here. He's here to win those games. And those are the games everyone expected him to help them win when they drafted him. And he did it. And he's shown that he can do it more than once. And, and again, that's more than most of their starters can say. So, you know, he's he's got some credibility right now. For a, I don't know how many years in a row it's been, but it feels like uh, every single season the Nationals go in and, and they have to trade for bullpen help, a closer, in the middle of the year. And and at least this year they're going into it. They have uh, Sean Doolittle. He's a closer. Ryan Madsen has been a closer. Brandon Kinsler has been a closer. Even Joaquin Benoit and Cody Glover have technically been closers. Is this is this the best bullpen you've seen the Nationals have in the preseason? Oh, absolutely. I mean, every year it's like, okay, let's wait for the closer to come and, and we don't have to do that best this year. It's a huge relief. But, you know, I, I think that they it is for sure. And maybe Madsen 
you know, regresses and, and Sean Kelly never finds it. And it's still the best bullpen they've had because they have a closer in place and it's a closer that you trust. And it's a guy who can handle sort of the chaos in a way that so few can. And, you know, I don't know if Coda Glover is going to be healthy this year. He's already got shoulder trouble. And, and you know, I don't know what Sean Kelly's going to be, but it, it does so much when you don't have to enter a season wondering what eight and nine is going to look like. And this team's shown they can add at the deadline. So, you know, it's so much easier to add seven, you know, six inning build kind of the Super Bowl pen at the deadline than it is to have to find the closer at the deadline. And, you know, I just think they enter this season in a much better position. They did everything they did last year by blowing, I think, 13 games maybe after the eighth inning. I mean, think of where they'd be if they hadn't. So it just takes so much pressure off everyone involved and just kind of clicks everything into place in a way that they haven't had, at least since I've been covering them since uh, 14, 15, 15, I guess. Yeah. Well, I know that you spoke to Jason Wirth earlier this month and he is still yeah. unsigned. He's probably <laughs> not going to be back with uh, with the Nationals, but he's still hoping to end up mm-hmm. somewhere. So in retrospect, that contract that was sort of ridiculed when he first signed it, I mean, do you look at that as having achieved what it was meant to achieve in that Jeff and I were just talking about the Eric Hosmer signing with the Padres and right. that's one of those worth-esque deals when it's like, you know, a team that maybe has been down on its luck lately will sign a respected veteran leader type and hope to change the clubhouse and make the team more attractive to free agents and everything. Do you think that Worth played a a large role in doing that? Oh, 100%. You know, I I think that by the numbers, it's not, you know, you can debate that contract. It's, you can argue it, but in person for everyone that's kind of followed this team firsthand, it, it, it was worth every penny. You know, he changed that team from, you know, what they fed their players to how they handled travel to just all the little ins and outs that you say, you know, make it a a desirable place to play. And I, you know, people debate kind of what kind of leader he was and, and what kind of impact he had in the clubhouse, but just on the organization, you know, he changed that culture. It really, he really did. And, and when I saw the Hosmer deal, that was like, you guys just said, one of the first things I thought of was it, it almost doesn't matter what he does. I mean, I don't know that he's ever going to live up to that contract by the numbers over eight years, but if by the end of it, they're a winner, you know, that's, they haven't been able to find that good leader over the years. And, you know, I think worth was that guy for the Nats who said, you know, wasn't going to take it anymore. Wasn't going to let you know, losing be a culture. And, you know, it helps when you can draft Bryce Harper and Steven Strasburg, of course. So, I mean, you got to kind of temper how much credit you give Jason. But I, you know, I think he just set a culture that that let those guys grow up thinking and expecting to win. And and that was something they didn't didn't have without him. I know this is a conversation. We probably asked this very question last year, but we're going to do it again. We've talked about Bryce Harper, talked about Scherzer and Strasburg, talked about all the stars on this team. Haven't, or at least we've barely mentioned the guy who tied last year for the top of the National League wins above replacement, Anthony Rendon. I know you only cover the Nationals. You uh, you have a unique look into the Nationals. Maybe not so much every other team, but if you could put on your best thinking about every team hat while in South Korea... Where does Anthony Rendon rank for you among the most underrated, still most underrated players in baseball? You know, I don't know that I can answer that from an other team lens because I think, you know, just even the fact that he didn't make the all-star team last year was just absurd. You know, I, I know third is just such a loaded position in that league, but I mean, he's, you know, 325 homers, 100 RBI, and you know, all the old school numbers are right there. The defense is much better than people think it is or realize it is. And he plays almost every day. And and he's, yeah, I, he's got to be a top three. I'm, I'm kind of blanking on who even it could be close. And I think one thing that gets lost about him, too, is, is you look at that lineup and you say, okay, well, he doesn't 
he can't mean that much, you know, like he he's, he's helped by that lineup. He, he doesn't change things for that team, but that's just not true. I mean, they've had so many injuries over the last couple of years and, and big guys go down and he's been sort of the steady guy who just keeps hitting and, and finds a way to, you know, get those runs in that you think Bryce would get in, but he's hurt or, or Murphy when he's struggling and it, he's just been so consistent. And, you know, on a team full of stars, you can kind of think that one doesn't make an impact, but when he's been healthy, they've moved him all over the order. You know, it, he's just, he's been invaluable. And I think, I can't think of anyone who's, who's more underrated, but I'm probably a little biased and a little sleep deprived at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will let you sleep soon. But first, I just, <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the Nationals are obviously a really good team. And so it makes sense that there wouldn't be a lot of uncertainties and holes and position battles on their roster this spring. Is the closest thing to a, a battle or a fight for playing time on the team the fifth starter slot? Is that AJ Cole's position to lose, assuming there's no late signing? Or is there any other place on the roster where things are sort of a toss up? Um, no, I think, I mean, I think you're spot on. I think they like Cole and, and the numbers suggest to them that he can be that reliable fifth guy. I think the bullpen, Coda not being fully healthy, I think scares them a little bit. Um, so I, I never rule out sort of that, that kind of signing. But, you know, I think otherwise, I think they're pretty set. But yeah, the, the fifth starter one to me is somewhere that you could still see a, a splash. But if they had to start the season with AJ Cole, they would. So I don't think they're going to reach for anyone. And that's sort of been their story for a couple of years now. And they've put themselves in a position where they, they don't have to do anything desperate this offseason or, you know, before opening day. All right. Well, we will end the way that we always do by asking the guests <laughs> for a win total prediction. Sounds like you remembered that this was coming. I did. <laughs> so hopefully you are roughly prepared. Yeah. Oh, man. I feel very strongly that this season could go either way. I think that there's a real chance it, you know, all the, the contract year stuff really gets to them and you could see 90-ish or, or fewer. But I think I'll go with 93. Okay. All right. Sounds reasonable. Which isn't a huge difference, yeah. but whatever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What do you have left on your Olympics coverage schedule? Oh, well, we're about to see some uh, some women's figure skating, so buckle up. <laughs> All right. I will let you get to that. You can read Chelsea in the Washington Post on the Olympics for a few more days. And then on the Nationals, you can find her on Twitter at Chelsea underscore Janes. Thank you very much for joining us from very far away in a very different time zone. <laughs> no, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. Okay, we'll take another quick break now, and we'll be back in just a moment to talk to Jason Beck about the Detroit Tigers. So in his chat at Fangraphs last Friday, a writer named Jeff Sullivan said, My job is to be aware of everything, but out of the 30 teams this season, I expect to pay attention to the Tigers the least. Fortunately, there are people who pay attention to the Tigers full-time. We are joined by one of the best of them now, Jason Beck, who covers the Tigers for MLB.com and is down at Lakeland at Tigers Camp now. Hey, Jason. Hey, Ben. How's it going? It's going pretty well. So 
The offseason obviously has been fairly slow for the Tigers. They traded Ian Kinsler, they signed Mike Fires and Leonis Martin, but there was some speculation, I think, that there would be more activity, that they would continue their sell-off. There are some guys on the roster who I think Alavila, the GM, has been pretty open about potentially trading at some point. So why do you think they didn't move even more players to kind of continue the rebuilding effort? Well, I I think if you look at the guys who didn't go, the the guys who are still on this team at this point, they fall into one of two camps. Either there's not a whole lot of, I I guess, motive to, to move them at this point, not a ton of urgency. Michael Fulmer would fall into that to where you can look at him, look at the fact that he's coming off of Granted, not a major elbow surgery, but one where when you move the nerve around in the elbow, you still want to see how he looks when he comes back. You can look at a case like Fulmer, whose name did come up during the winter meetings, and the Tigers you know, made no secret about that. You can look at his case and expect that if he comes back healthy as expected, he should have a bigger market and be able to draw a higher return than he would have this offseason immediately coming off of surgery. So I, I think Fulmer falls into that group. Uh, I think Nick Castellanos, if he makes the transition to right field successfully, would fall into that group where you, you would realistically uh, expect a, a little greater uh, demand if he can show that he can play at least a semblance of defense out and right. And then the other camp are guys that they've been kind of shopping and really not making much of a secret about that for a while, but haven't gotten a whole lot of interest on. Uh, Jose Iglesias has been out there for basically two off seasons now and hasn't gotten really any serious interest, which is kind of surprising given the premium the teams put on defensive short. But I think when you look at Iglesias' defense, you have to reconcile the highlights and the fantastic plays that he puts up, what the metrics tell you about his day-in, day-out defense. Right. And then you add in the fact that his offense is a mixed bag at best, and teams look around and see better options elsewhere right now. So that that's kind of where the Tigers have fallen and why we haven't seen kind of a mass sell-off like we've seen with, with other teams that are going through similar rebuilds. You mentioned Castellanos and of course with the uh, with the Tigers there's limited in the limited quality youth you could say on the roster it's one of the reasons that they find themselves in such a challenging position but I think of the young players on the major league roster the one that intrigues me the most is and has long been Daniel Norris and it, it seemed like in 2016 Norris was figuring it out and he had sort of somewhat established himself as a quality major league starter and then last year he took a a big step back so what is what's the situation going on with Daniel Norris right now and, and what hope do the Tigers have of his developing into something at least close to what it looked like he could have been as a Blue Jays prospect I think what Norris is banking on and what the Tigers are banking on is that if he can put together a full healthy season which he hasn't been able to do in his major league career uh, either before or after coming up to the Tigers that if you can get him to make 30 starts or, or more with the Tigers in the season, that he'll get the repetitions he needs to make that learning curve. We've seen flashes of it. He put together 
very good starts against the Indians. He's one of the few Tigers pitchers to do that multiple times. Uh, he put together a fantastic start in Houston against an Astros offense that beat up on Justin Verlander and Michael Fulmer, if I remember right. He shows flashes of having very, very good stuff. Uh, he shows less frequent flashes of having a good idea how to use it. So if you can get him in rotation and in a stretch where he's making starts every five games or every five days and learning on the fly, like what a lot of other young pitchers get to do, the Tigers and Norris are banking on him being able to take those lessons in to starts and being able to, to make that learning curve and being able to put things together more consistently. And I think most importantly, figure out his mechanics and figure out how to correct those mechanics when he falls out of line in the middle of a game, which has really been a bugaboo for him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when we talk about the Tigers, uh, uh, of course, there are a lot of players we could talk about as being somewhat disappointing. It's why the Tigers find themselves where they are. But it was only a few years ago that uh, Jordan Zimmerman signed for $110 million over five years. You could call those the J.D. Martinez terms. Martinez, of course, one of the premium free agents just signed the other day with the Red Sox. Zimmerman signed for those terms, and since then, he's been one of the least effective starting pitchers in baseball. Last year, his ERA soared beyond six. And when you look at Zimmerman, it's not like his stuff has diminished all that much. He's lost maybe a mile per hour since his his finish with the Nationals. Is this just a matter of his health hasn't been there for him is or is there something that's maybe more fixable that's happening with Jordan Zimmerman because right now he looks like he's he's difficult to salvage well I think the health is the main thing and I think the fact that it's looking more and more like this is going to be a long-term issue that's going to affect him the rest of his career however long that lasts he's had neck issues since shortly after arriving in Detroit a, a few years ago He's required nerve block injections to free up the neck enough where he feels comfortable pitching. He's had to have repeated injections. And then he was hoping that he could get one right before spring training. And if it goes on the schedule he's had between injections last year, that that injection would allow him to feel comfortable throughout the year. But then he went down there and the doctor said, well, it makes no sense getting one in your neck if if you're not feeling anything. It it would risk uh, being less effective than when you really actually needed it. So he got one in his back instead. And the back issue, which he, now he says has bothered him off and on for over a year now too, that's a new issue to us. So when you compound neck issues with back issues, you don't get a whole lot of optimism. It's beatable, and maybe he gets comfortable enough with being able to manage the pain or manage the tightness that he finds some sort of rhythm on the mound and finds some sort of delivery that allows him to make it work. But he's been searching now for for over a year, and he really hasn't found it. And there's really not much that gives you optimism except for those moments where, you know, those rare starts where he feels free and easy. And he looks younger again out there. And he looks like somebody who can get hitters to beat the ball into the ground. And we just haven't seen that aside from the first couple months of, of his first season here. 
So staying within the same genre of formerly excellent player who has fallen on harder times, Miguel Cabrera showed up at camp recently. You wrote about him, and he is, of course, coming off by far his worst offensive season. It was an injury-ridden season. He has made some changes this winter to try to correct that, and you know, he says that he wasn't hitting the ball as hard as he usually does last year, but he did still hit the ball pretty hard. It's just that the results weren't there. So there is some sense of optimism about there maybe still being a lot left in his bat. So what's the level of confidence around the team that the changes he made can keep him healthy? Well, you have to counter. On the one hand, you've got Cabrera's history of being very good with workouts been very good at keeping himself in shape, even when he's not necessarily 100% healthy. On the flip side, there's the age, which you can't get around. He's 35, or he's going on 35. He's had nagging injuries off and on for the last five years, at least. Uh, Some of them pretty severe, some of which he's downplayed, but which you can tell hampered him more than he was letting on, unless he Tesses up to it at the end of the season, which sometimes he does, which he did with the back last year. He said at the end of the season last year that the back really affected the swing because he couldn't get out and extend his arms the way he wanted to in his swing, which would explain why pitchers seemed a lot more aggressive attacking him with fastballs and feeling like they could get away with it. Now, if he can, if the, the back issues if the back workouts and the core muscle workouts allow him to get his flexibility back and he's got that extension again, then I think you have a decent chance of seeing something more like the Cabrera of old, a guy who can send the ball out to the opposite field with some consistency, a guy who you have to pitch very carefully, especially when there's guys on base. But it sounds kind of like Zimmerman in that The back is going to be an issue to some extent with Cabrera the rest of his career. He admits that. So now it's up to him to try to do enough stretching. And I think, too, to to keep the weight off enough to where it doesn't become an increasing problem, that it becomes something he can manage. Is that something he's going to be able to do? Time will tell. I I think we've talked about the issue of Cabrera and his weight and – the work it puts on his legs more so than his back in past years, I think, including on this podcast. He's going to have to be lighter, I think, going forward. And you would think to some degree that's going to affect what type of power he's going to have behind his back. About three years ago, Victor Martinez uh, was wildly unproductive. And then two years ago, he he bounced back. Last year, his numbers went south again. He's had a volatile last five years or so of his career. And of course, as far as the Tigers' future goes, we're talking about a 39-year-old designated hitter here, but Martinez still has that bat-to-ball ability. And the Tigers look, they look a lot stronger if their, their name value was able to perform like their name value would suggest. So is there is there hope for another Victor Martinez bounce back? Or at this point, is this just a matter of letting him play out the string because he's 39 years old and he's got his own injury problems like everyone else on this roster? I think right now, given Victor's age and the seriousness of the health issues he's had the last couple of years, we've talked about the knees for, for years, the surgeries he's gone through there. But now more recently, the heart issues and the family history that he's had there. Victor lost his father at a 
relatively young age to a heart attack, which I think was one one reason why the his heart issues, the accelerated heartbeat was so scary last year. You combine those health issues, I think anything the Tigers get out of Victor this season in terms of productivity is a bonus. And I think if you had if you had the Tigers in the in an honest moment, they would admit the same thing. They still want to run him through camp, see what he's got, see if he can hit. Because if if he can hit even without a ton of power, if you can get you know a guy who you know with his track record of contact and his track record of hitting in, in RBI situations, the Tigers would take that, especially with this lineup because you know, the position prospects they have. They're not coming for another couple years. It's not like there's somebody waiting in line to take Victor's DH spot or, you know, assuming that they would move Cabrera to DH if Victor couldn't go to, to take over at first base. There's not an impact power hitter that you could say is right on the cusp of the big leagues right now. Christian Stewart's the closest guy, and they want him getting more time at the very least, getting serious time at AAA, maybe even repeating AA to start this season. That's besides the point. But given that, they're going to give Victor every chance to show he can hit in spring training, and probably at the beginning of the season. And then if it doesn't work out, they can you know, reach some sort of settlement in midseason, send him on his way, try to cobble together some hitters to uh, fill fill the void in the lineup. And, and if they do get something, maybe they try to flip him for some sort of salary relief, or maybe they just ride him out and, and hope that he can provide some lessons for the younger guys. Yeah. So unlike some of the teams we've been talking about early in this series, teams like the Padres and the White Sox, who are also maybe not expecting to win right now, those teams have really rich farm systems and the Tigers just aren't there yet. According to both Baseball Prospectus and Baseball America, the Tigers have the 21st best farm system this year. Is there a clear path for them to go from 21st to you know, the top 10, the top five to get that really rich stock of prospects that rebuilding teams always try to acquire. I assume the draft this year and having a, a high pick will help, but is there anything they can do beyond that? Yeah, the draft's going to be crucial for them, not just because of the first overall pick, but also because, you know, with the, um, you know, with the spend, spending pool that comes with that, I think this is a team that's tried to use that pool in creative ways. I think you saw that last year with some of the different draft picks they threw out there. They were able to turn a fifth-round pick into a pretty talented high school catcher at Sam McMillan that they gave a a seven-figure bonus to, which, you know, in this day and age with these limited pools is fairly rare, especially for a team that was picking in the uh, back half of of the uh, each round last year. That's one avenue I think the other avenue is that they're hoping that they saw some things in some of these prospects that they acquired last summer in some of these trades, especially some of the position prospects they acquired at the lower levels in both the J.D. Martinez trade and especially in the Justin Wilson-Alex Avila trade, and that those guys will rise up the prospect rankings and kind of lift the Tigers' system rankings with it. Isaac Paredes was a guy who showed some really promising flashes over the final month or two at West Michigan. He was a shortstop in the Cubs system in low A ball. 
an 18-year-old with a really uh, developed body, a stronger body than you would expect from a teenager. He's probably not going to stick at shortstop. He's probably going to have to move to third or second. But the power in his bat, the Tigers think, has some real upside to it. Uh, they think that, well, Lugo, who's a double-A right now, is probably set to go to triple-A. They think there's a little bit more there than maybe has shown up. Uh, they're hoping that one of the shortstop prospects they got from Arizona, either uh, Jose King or uh, Alcantara, can hit enough to where they can be looked at as at least a platoon option at shortstop long-term in the major leagues. And they're hoping that they have a surplus of, of catching prospects. You know, they got a, who they think is a talented catching prospect in Jake Rogers, uh, supplementing what they did in the draft with McMillan and Joey Morgan. You know, they, they've got a glut of catching prospects right now. They need more than one of those guys to pan out so that it allows them some sort of transition once either James McCann hits free agency or if he's eventually traded for prospects, if he develops to the point where there's a demand for him on the uh, trade market here down the road. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the catching situation. Last year, according to Baseball Prospectus, the Tigers ranked dead last in framing runs, receiving runs by quite a few. Actually, there was a a pretty big gap between them and the second worst team in that category. That's mostly McCann, who has never really graded well, according to those metrics. So is that something, do you know whether the team is paying attention to that, whether it's trying to work with McCann at all, whether he's aware? of what the stats say about him? Yeah, I think there's a renewed focus on it. I, I know the Tigers are certainly aware and McCann is aware. I, I think given some of the wild flips that have gone on in his framing metrics over the last few years, I think there was one year in between. It wasn't 17, but I think it was 16, where he graded out as like uh, dead even instead of being the worst, that they're kind of taking some of the variances with a grain of salt and taking some of it as a product of the pitchers they had him trying to frame, certainly they, it wasn't an easy bunch of pitchers last year. He would argue, well, I don't think he would argue it publicly, but I think other people would argue for him. So you try to frame a guy like Hiro Labor or Chad Bell. But um, yeah, interestingly enough, you're seeing a little bit of a renewed focus on catcher positioning from the pitching coaches the Tigers brought in. Uh, they made what they think is a, a very big hire for them in Chris Basio, who uh, they jumped at once uh, Basio and the Cubs parted ways uh, last October. And in addition to working a ton with the pitchers, Basio is a pitching coach who incorporates the catchers a lot into what he's trying to do pitching-wise. And you're seeing Basio trying to work with catcher positioning, work with where guys like McCann and John Hicks and even Rodgers, because they've had some of the prospects in camp lately, uh, working with them as far as trying to, to give a different look to the pitchers, give different targets to try to both give the pitchers a better chance and also make the pitchers a little bit less predictable. Uh, it's a little different than what we've heard from any pitching coaches in Tigers camp in, in years, if not ever. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. I know the Tigers think the world of McCann as a game caller and a pitch caller, but uh, in terms of framing, I think they've they've been working with him quite a bit, and I think their best hope in terms of improvement there comes in 
either improvement from the pitching staff or in the works with uh, with Basio. A few years ago, an, uh, an author named Ben Lindbergh wrote an article at Grantland that uh, was titled How the Tigers Fixed One of the Worst Fielders in Baseball. That was an article about uh, Nick, Nick Castellanos. And you know, the funny thing is, he really did improve pretty significantly in 2015 from 2014. But of course, he remained a problematic defender at third base. He's being moved to the outfield. I understand the defense is a is a question, and I don't know, maybe that's a follow-up. But just looking at Castellanos overall, he's he's no longer quite as young as... You know, as he's been before, that's the way that it works. He's he's getting more and more expensive. He's got a $6 million contract now through arbitration. But offensively, he seems to have this... I see so many parallels between Castellanos and J.D. Martinez, who, of course, came before him. There's just a similar approach, similar aggressiveness, similar bat-to-ball contact, and and they never pop up. But Castellanos, just as, as much as he's been better the last two years, he hasn't really taken off the way that it seems, based on the metrics, like he could. What do the Tigers sense is, is missing with Castellanos? Do they think that there's another level there, or, or should people just be satisfied with where Castellanos is now as an above average hitter who's, I don't know, Corey Dickerson just got designated for assignment by the Rays, right? So is is there more here? And and or did the Tigers think that maybe the defense is too much of a priority for uh, for his offense to improve? Not only do the Tigers think there's more, they're, they're banking on it. I think that's one big reason why they held on to him instead of uh, trying to ship him uh, for what they would have probably deemed a, a reduced uh, return uh, is, is because they think that by holding on to him and going through the arbitration process with him, that he can take that next step and become a much more appealing hitter to teams who need offense. I think part of it is that when you look at his stats, he had an incredible September, especially considering how little support there was for him in the lineup and how few guys were were on base when, when he came up to bat. But you know, he really stepped up after Justin Upton was gone and after Miguel Cabrera was hurt and after Victor Martinez was done for the year. He really took on a new role on the team and also a new role in the lineup. He, he basically was the center of that lineup. And all of a sudden, you saw all that hard contact and all that launch angles and all all those line drives that were seemingly getting caught. Uh, you know, they started falling for him. I think part of it was he felt a greater responsibility, but else, but talking with him, another part was that once he moved to right field in early September, after they called up Jaime Candelario, he felt freed in terms of being able to focus on his offense and not being so self-conscious about his defense. So if he can take that, carry that into this year, and basically just focus on being a really good hitter with a modicum of emphasis on being a really good right fielder. Now, granted, he says he, he focused his workouts on being a little bit more agile and a little bit more mobile in the outfield and being able to run better routes. But even being less self-conscious about defense you would hope could allow him to put in the work to take that next step offensively and be that 100 RBI, you know, 30 double, maybe even repeat double-digit triples again more consistently. 
This is sort of a a parallel to the Royals preview where we talked about a team that was really good for a a period and spent and got good players and then sort of cycled out of its competitive period. And with the Tigers, you could see that coming for quite a while. And I'm wondering how the fan base feels about that. Obviously, the Tigers didn't get the championship that the Royals fan base did. But do Tigers fans feel like, you know what, we were one of the best teams in the league in baseball for several years there. We had it pretty good. This is what happens on the other end of that, and it's necessary and unavoidable. Or is there frustration? Do people feel upset that they didn't avoid this down cycle somehow? Um, I think you got fans split into both camps. I think part of that's because this change of direction coincided with a change in ownership. Uh, Mike Ellis right. passed away uh, a little bit over a year ago now, and his son Chris is doing a lot of the uh, is, is filling a lot of the ownership duties right now. The, the, there's every signal at this point that the team is going to stay in the family, in part because it's part of the the larger project they're doing around Detroit and downtown and Midtown, combining the ballpark in the neighborhood around that with a new hockey and basketball arena and a new residential commercial project popping up in between trying to connect these two neighborhoods as part of the revitalization of the center city of Detroit. But besides that, I think there's a segment of fans that got so used to Mike Yelich spending way beyond the expectations for a team in this market and chasing a world series every year in being able to carry a win now mentality for over a decade and say, well, if we could do this before, why aren't we doing this now? Especially when there's so many good free agents still out there near the end of the off season. Why are they not spending money? Why can't they see these guys and, and sign these guys and, and take one more shot at contending? But I think, there's another segment that understands that this team operated with a bare bones farm system for so long Mm -hmm. and tried to operate with an aging roster for so long that I think more of the hardcore baseball fans understand that this was coming for a while and that the Tigers put it off as long as they could probably too long to be honest i I think there were some fans who were wondering why this didn't come a couple years ago Mm -hmm. when some of these guys that they traded might have been able to to draw a greater return but that that segment of fans those hardcore fans understand this is probably going to be a long-term process but it's a necessary process to get this franchise operating on the level with other major league clubs and trying to to create a young core. And I think the fact that the Tigers have at least the semblance of their next rotation in the farm system right now with Alex Fajardo, with Bo Burrows, with Franklin Perez coming over in the Verlander trade, uh, with Kyle Funkhauser and with Matt Manning down in A-ball, that, you know, that helps the Tigers' argument here is that they can point to these guys down in the, in the farm system at various stops and say, once these guys get here, we've built around a young rotation before we can do it again. You know, they can point to Verlander and Scherzer and Rick Porcello and guys like that and say, this is that, that next group that we're looking towards to, to get us back to respectability. 
Mm -hmm. And does anyone know if when they come out on the other side of this process, Chris Illich might be willing to ramp up payrolls to Mike Illich levels again? Or are those days gone for good? Or is it just too soon to say? I'd be surprised personally. Every indication from the Tigers is that those days of hovering that payroll right around the luxury tax threshold and above, those days of paying luxury tax penalties are over unless there's some sort of change in ownership and somebody comes in and decides to go crazy and try to make a big splash and try to draw fans back in in the seats if there's an attendance drop-off and try to cash in on some sort of big TV deal uh, since their, their rights will be up for renewal in a few years. Barring that, I think the Tigers are trying... Well, I think what you would expect to see from the Tigers is a lot like what you see from the NHL's Detroit Red Wings, a team that Chris Illich has been uh, more active in over the last few years, while his father had more of an interest on the baseball side. The Wings have been trying for a little while now to operate around young talent and operate with a more manageable payroll. Part of that is because you know the NHL is just a totally different financial model. But I think part of it, too, is that Chris Illich wants something a little bit more sustainable and more consistent. And he's a little bit younger and he comes from a a different school of thought than what his father did. And so what you're seeing right now with the Tigers is a big, albeit late, ramp up in analytics coinciding with major and some would argue uncharacteristic compared to the rest of baseball ramp up in their scouting, both at the major and minor league levels. And they're trying to meld the two schools of thought around a, a database system, combining scouting opinions with metrics and analytics with uh, StatCast and TrackMan data and trying to spit out some sort of hybrid model for how to build a roster. Well, you have been on these preview segments before. We are still ending them the same way by asking the guest for a predicted win total for the coming season. So can you give us your best guess? You know, when they started down this road with the trades last year, towards the end of last year, if you you asked me a prediction for this season, I would have said 100 losses easily, maybe even hovering close to 110. I don't know if they're necessarily there now unless they make a few more trades. I think there's enough with Fulmer, with some of the young pitchers, uh, with Castellanos, with a healthy Cabrera that they can, that they can avoid a hundred losses. I don't think they'll get to 70 wins. I, I would put it at like, oh gosh, let's put it at like 64 wins. Does mm-hmm. that make sense? Sure. You know, does that mean 98 losses? I don't know. Uh, you know, the weather is so crazy in Detroit in the summer. They'll probably lose. And they have enough home games in, like, March and April. They'll probably lose a game or two to uh, to uh, to weather because they won't want to make up some of these games. But, uh, yeah, I, I would say somewhere around, you know, between 95 and 98 losses. 
Okay. Sure. Yeah, we don't actually ask people to predict loss totals, so win total. <laughs> win total. That's how I've been training my. That's how I've been training myself for this process. Is how many games this team going to lose? That's what people ask me. They don't want to know how many they win. <laughs> right. Well, we hope that you find ways to make it interesting for yourself to cover a bad Tigers team as as interesting as it was to cover really good Tigers teams, which you've also done. So we will be following your work either way. And you can find Jason at MLB.com, also on Twitter at Beck Jason. Thank you, as always. Great to have you on. Thanks for having me on. Always love doing this every year. Thank you very much. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. Five listeners who have already pledged their support include David Hecht, Earl Pope, Conrad Swartz, Justin Lonstein, and Samuel Derrick. Thanks to all of you. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash effectivelywild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for editing assistance. Please keep your comments and questions coming for me and Jeff via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system we will get to your questions next time remember to check out our sister site started by effectively wild listeners banished to the pen at banished to the pen.com where they have written previews up for each of the teams that we have previewed on the podcast we will talk to you again very soon Love travel.